we don't screen enough for depression or suicidal ideations, unfortunately, primary care still hasn't caught up with the need to do this, especially in older men. And one of the highest risk groups are our veterans with PTSD. What do we need to understand about older adults how climate change impacts this vulnerable population, and how adult gerontological nurse practitioners are needed now more than ever in our rapidly aging world? Let's talk all about it with doctor of nursing practice, author, professor, and president-elect of the Gerontological Advanced Practice Nurses Association, Dr. Anne Kribo-Gasparo, right here on episode 440 of The Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the bigger picture. And I'm always here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring and interesting people from the worlds of healthcare and nursing, medicine, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. And if you'd like to earn CEUs for listening to podcasts about nursing and healthcare and medicine, go to rnegade.pro, that's R-N-E-G-A-D-E.pro, sign up to the portal, click on any content creator, including myself from the drop-down menu and earn CEs while you listen. And if you want to help other people find this show, leave a rating and review over on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Amazon, or become a patron at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Nurse Keith. Anything you'd like to do to support the Nurse Keith show and the work we do here is greatly appreciated. The show notes are always at nursekeith.com in the podcast drop-down menu. And they're also on any app where you happen to be listening, and you can click on any of the links that we share during course of the conversation and visit those links and let them know that you heard the episode. Anyway, as I said at the top of the show, we're here with Dr. Anne Kribo-Gasparo, and Anne, I'm so glad you're here. And the first thing I want to ask you is, what are some of the main things you think nurses and healthcare providers need to recognize about our aging society? Oh, thank you so much, Keith, for having me on. I'm so very excited to be talking about this subject as the, um, you know, a subject very close to my heart, older adults who I think, as we all know, the population of older adults is getting larger and larger, and it's not going to get smaller anytime soon. And another big issue is climate change. My gosh, um, I my article on climate change effects on the older adult was published just a year ago, and I can honestly say that things are not getting better things are actually getting worse. In my article, I do write about uh, some of the events that have hap- that had happened a couple of years ago, including the fires in California and floods. And uh, my gosh, it actually, you know, just this past few months, we had fires in Canada, we've had floods up in New York. So it's, it's not, it's really hard not to see how this is really an issue that's going to impact everyone, but it does have a really serious effect on our older adults because they are so vulnerable. Uh, our older adults have, you know, chronic diseases. Uh, as a gerontological nurse practitioner, and you know, I can say this along with my colleagues. Uh, you know, it's very seldom that you find a 100% healthy older adult without some type of chronic disease. You know, they are out there, but they're they're not that common. You know, as we age, we have cardiovascular diseases, renal diseases. Um, you know, we're more more prone to blood clots, and this is exactly why these high temperatures can be so 
harmful to the older adult because we don't have the ability to compensate for these high temperatures as we did when we were younger. And, uh, you know, if you listen to the news, you know that a lot of older adults do actually die from the high heat. So it's a huge concern. It is a huge concern. I mean, here in the United States, where you and I both live and work, we have an aging society and we all know that, you know, the silver tsunami, as they've been calling it for years, has been kind of hitting the shores, so to speak, for for quite some time. I mean, I'm going to be 60 next year, so I'm part (laughs) of that demographic myself, right? And the, the thing is that this is happening all over the world. You know, yes, in Europe, absolutely. I was reading about the heat waves in Europe this this summer. And, you know, a very, very small percentage, I think less than 10% of homes in Europe have air conditioning. You know, many have not been retrofitted for AC, whereas in the United States, it's a very large number that have air conditioning. And when we think about flooding, fires, you know, we have a fire here in the Jemez Mountains, west of Santa Fe right now. It's our oh first goodness. big one of the summer. We've been very lucky. Yeah. But when I think about how New York and the Northeast were affected by the fires and the smoke from Canada earlier this summer, and we yes. had the hottest month on record recently. Yes. So, so in your research and in this really excellent article that you had published in 2022 in the Journal for Nurse Practitioners. Um, it's an excellent article. Thank you. The the areas that you mentioned, respiratory, renal, cardiovascular, obviously play big roles. Yes. Can you say something about the psychological impacts of oh, climate gosh. change yes. on the older adult? What have you found? Oh, absolutely. Um, it is not just physical, um, but it. if you think about uh, an older adult, an older adult means over 65, but people are 65, 75, 85, 95. There are many people in their 90s, and that population is actually growing. So many of those people are at home. But imagine losing your home to a disaster, like a fire or a flood. And, you know, as people get older, they have less resources. They may be on a fixed income. Um, I'm going to add something here about air conditioning, because I think this is so important for us to remember. Uh, Yes, we do have more air conditioning units or homes in the United States. However, one of the things that I found in my research is that we do have a high population of older adults who are on fixed or low incomes. And even though they may have air conditioning, many don't. Even though they may have air conditioning, they may not turn it on because of the expense. They can't afford it. They can't afford it. And that's a travesty. So, so yes, the high heat can affect them, even if they do have access to an air conditioner. So it's really, it is really a problem. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes when we see our older adults uh, in the clinic setting or in the hospital, we often don't see where they live. We don't think about where they live. And so that's a piece of the puzzle that we're not really being cognizant of. So, Anne, you know, we recognize all these impacts. And you know what's really sad to me in the moment, just thinking about it, is how, you know, when you have octogenarians and nonagenarians mm-hmm. who yeah. have lived long, productive lives, right? And they're allegedly in what, you know, has always been referred to as their golden years. And here they are fakes, faced with the existential angst of a world on fire and a world heating up and ice caps melting, et cetera. And then on the other hand, I think about all the young people who are facing, you know, they're in their early part of their lives facing existential angst as they consider what they're going to do with their lives. And so I, 
you know, these psychological effects aren't small. And you and I, in our conversation prior to this, you just mentioned sort of offhand to me that these effects of climate change aren't really being taught in nurse practitioner programs. No, no, not, not. If they are, <clears throat> I am not aware of it, but I know that, and I do teach in a mm-hmm. nurse practitioner program, and I have for many, many years, we are not really teaching about it. I, in my research, I found that um, some of the uh, bachelor's degree programs are beginning to address it. But as far as in medical school, uh, NP school, PA school, no, we are not teaching it. Uh, we're not teaching about pollution or saving the planet or, you know, any of those things. And, and I don't know, it, it's not so much that we don't care. I think it's just that there's such a time crunch to teach everything that we need to teach, but it, it's also so important that we do add this because, you know, uh, we only have one planet and, um, you know, it's called uh, one of the newest terms is planetary health. And I think mm. the health of the planet it means health of the people that live on it. So mm-hmm. um, I, I did write in the article that is something that we really need to focus on is teaching about climate change, especially for health care providers, such as mm-hmm. nurses and nurse practitioners. It's very important. Do you think the possibility is there that this will be uh, adopted into more and more curricula? How do you feel as a as an educator yourself? I absolutely think it will be. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know how soon, but I think um, I am seeing more and more articles coming out about climate change and about how we need to incorporate climate change into the care of all of our patients. Um, you know, I my focus was on the older adult because that's my specialty. Um, it, but it's not just the older adult that's very vulnerable. It's also young people, infants. They're also very susceptible because their lungs are not developed. And then as you get older, your lungs may have some chronic diseases like asthma, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it's really important for everyone. And I, I think we just, you know, climate change, I think we just need to catch up. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. And yeah. speaking of older people and your research and the work that you've been doing in these recent years, you also published an article in the Journal for Nurse Practitioners about Older Males, and the name of the article is Chronic Disease Screening and Health Promotion Strategies for Older Men. And this was published in 2022 as well. Now, what is it about the health of elder men that caught your eye and your attention and made you want to, you know, zero in and add to whatever literature is out there about older males? That's such a great question. And what uh, really, uh, so myself and two colleagues, also Gapna members, uh, co-wrote the article. And what really caught our attention is just that there is really so very little focused on the older male. Um, And you can say overall on males in general, but the older male has kind of been neglected overall, uh, as far as um, articles and research, uh, it's beginning to change, but not as much as it should be. Uh, So, you know, uh, it was interesting that we found that uh, there is research showing that um, older men, and that's men 65 and older, seek healthcare less uh, they they go to their primary care provider less than um, everyone else does, and um, they almost have uh, an emergency only mindset. Uh, either because they're busy, you know, working, doing other things, and 
And it's often the attitude that, well, if it's not bleeding, I don't need to go to the doctor. So preventive healthcare is really not in the forefront of their mind. So that, that was a really interesting concept. And I think one of the goals of this article, because I'm a teacher, I educate nurse practitioners, I wanted to bring up the idea that when we have an older male in the office, that's the time to kind of get them, catch them and do whatever we can. Don't just say, oh, I'll see you in a month or so, because they'll probably not come back. So the, the key will be to do everything we can do, maybe labs, maybe a uh, EKG, et cetera. So mm-hmm. having that mindset, we might be um, be able to take better care of them and do more. And, you know, prevention is the key. Uh, it's true. so much, yeah, it's so much better to prevent rather than try to cure something that's already, um, you know, started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the article, you mentioned abdominal aortic aneurysm, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, prediabetes and type 2 diabetes, all the different cancers, colorectal, skin, lung, etc. And then, you know, prostate cancer, of course, hyperlipidemia. Mm -hmm. But then you also, you know, we mentioned mental health earlier when we were mentioning climate change. Yes. Reading in your article here, it says men aged greater than 65 years have the highest suicide rates in the world. The suicide risk of older men is four times higher than women. And untreated depression is a leading cause of suicide in men. So that sounds like there are a lot of tools out there that you mention here in the article that you can use to assess the mental, you know, psychological health of older men. Is this something you feel gets short shrift in the general healthcare world in terms of the care of older people and older men specifically? I I do. I think once, um, so one of the things I did as a nurse practitioner, um, I would do what we call house calls uh, which was uh, basically the Medicare wellness assessment. And of course, that doesn't occur until uh, both men and women are on Medicare. And the Medicare wellness assessment includes a lot of tools for checking depression, um, you know, if the depression uh, risk or survey is positive, then you could go into uh, maybe suicidal risk. Um, however, before they're on uh, Medicare, that's not really the focus of a visit. And as I mentioned, a lot of men, uh, up until they're on Medicare, they they don't get those screenings, and mm-hmm. it's unfortunate. And and I not just singling out older men, I, it's just um, goes across the board for anyone in primary care. We don't often, we don't screen enough for depression or suicidal ideations. Unfortunately, um, primary care still hasn't caught up with the need to do this, mm-hmm. especially in older men. And one of the highest risk groups are our veterans. Oh, yes. They, yes, with PTSD and. Mm -hmm. And many of us are aware of how the, as, as great as the VA is in many, many respects, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and kudos to them for all the things they do for veterans. Absolutely. There is quite a deficit when it comes to getting appointments, when it comes to seeing specialists. So there is a lot of a lot of veterans, older men, et cetera, who are in need of that type of care and aren't necessarily getting it. So if someone out there is a nurse practitioner or even a registered nurse, you know, I've used the PHQ two and nine, the patient yeah. health questionnaire. Yeah. Yes. Um, I know there's the geriatric depression scale, 
yes. geriatric anxiety inventory. There's lots of different inventories and tools that we can use, but we have to use them in order exactly. to gather that data, don't <laughs> we, we? We have to think about them and use them. And um, I think one of the things to remember is that um, unless you have a trusting, well, even if you have a trusting relationship with a patient, um, this is not something that um, a patient, especially an older male, and, you know, it does have to do with pride or, you know, not mm -hmm. wanting to appear weak. This subject's not going to come up. No. So the, the onus is really on us as nurses to ask these questions in a very non-threatening way. You know, how are you feeling? You know, um, have you been depressed or, you know, and as, especially if it's a time period after a spouse has died, mm -hmm. that's, that's a time period where that really needs to be evaluated. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. So. Yeah. I hope some of the people listening might want to look up some of those um, tools or read your article in the Journal of Nurse Practitioners um, so that they can become more apprised of all of the tools that are out there that are available, evidence-based tools for yes. assessing mental yeah. health, especially of older adults. So, Anne, when we come back from the break, I'd like to talk about GAPNA the Gerontological Advanced Practice yeah. Nurses Association, of which you're the president-elect. And I'd like to talk about some other issues around gerontological nursing and advanced practice nursing. Does that sound okay? Yeah, that sounds great. Thank you. Great. So hang in there. We'll be right back for the second half of episode 440 of The Nurse Keith Show with Dr. Anne Crebo-Gasparo right here on The Nurse Keith Show. And welcome back to the second half of the episode. Again, we're here with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Dr. Anne Crebo-Gasparo. She is the president-elect of the Gerontological Advanced Practice Nurses Association. And gerontological is a hard word to pronounce, Anne. It's a really tough one, isn't it? Oh, man, I have a hard time with it. That's why we, we call it GAPNA. I mean, right. no one could say that three times in a row. Yes. <laughs> so tell me about GAPNA, the history, and why this specialized organization for nurse practitioners is so important right now? Oh, well, thank you for asking that question, Keith. Um, so uh, as we try to say gerontological, um, it's so much easier to say GAPNA, which is really care of the older adult. And that that is a specialty. And you know what? I didn't do my homework, so I don't know how long. GAPNA has actually been in existence, I think, over 20 years mm -hmm. at least. So I don't have the date. But I do know that I've been a member for quite a few years. I love the organization. And uh, I've served on many committees and SIGs and um it's not as big as AMP, and it's definitely not as big as the uh, um, uh, nursing um, organizations, which are huge, but we're big enough, and the networking is wonderful. Um, so the purpose of GAPNA is really not just networking, but that's that's really a fun thing that we do. We have two in-person uh, conferences per year. Uh, we just had one in April in Hawaii, which was a lot mm. of fun and a lot of learning. It wasn't mm. just going to the beach. But um, so, so GAPNA's goal is really to educate on uh, issues pertaining to the older adult. So uh, we... Um, our members include um, nurse practitioners, of course. So we cover acute care issues and primary care issues, uh, which is really important because those in themselves are really different, different specialties. Uh, we have a lot of uh, educators in our group. 
a lot of, uh, we have about a thousand members, I believe, but we have Mm -hmm. a lot of members who are educators, but also a lot of members who practice, who are active uh, in legislature. In fact, um, we have uh, 18 chapters across the United States. Uh, We are always hoping to have more chapters, um, especially in the Southwest. Um, I still belong to my chapter in Pennsylvania called the Liberty Chapter. But we have many, many committees and special interest groups, uh, including house calls, long-term care, hospice, um, too many for me to to name uh, here. Uh, One of our our biggest committees, our chapters, and most active is health affairs. Hmm. And uh, nurse practitioners in GAPNA are very involved in legislative issues and uh, actually uh, talk to people in Washington. And this all has to do with advocating for our older adults because they do need a voice. And it could be anything from uh, full practice authority to being able to um, prescribe for diabetic shoes, um, many, many different issues. So that's a very active um, chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. that we have. And um, we also have a foundation. Um, and our foundation gives out scholarships to the nurse practitioner members and also to student members. And the scholarships can be used for uh, projects for their education. Or uh, we just gave out a scholarship for uh, one of our members to attend the, um, the uh, Health Affairs Conference in Washington, D.C. Another fun thing that we do is develop toolkits. Um, we have a conference toolkit for any um, chapter or state that wants to have conferences. So we kind of put that together to kind of, you know, it's it's kind of a, a menu as to well, what I what do I do? How do I do this? And um, we, there's actually one that the Health Affairs Committee just developed and finished called uh, how to be an advocate for legislation Hmm. so and very involved but uh you know there's different pieces to it um and uh so a lot of good work by a lot of uh good chapters committees that sounds very important and advocacy is so important because for one you know legislators they only know what we educate them about because You know, you might find a legislator here and there who might be a doctor or a nurse, but many of them are lawyers or business people or, you know, they have, they don't necessarily have a healthcare background. So they're not going to understand certain things unless we educate them. And that's part of what advocacy is. But also, you know, whether it's educating them about older adults and what their challenges are, and there's also we have to make sure that the Nurse Practice Act in each state where the states where we practice remains strong because we know there are forces out there that might want to water down our Practice Act. Like you said, Mm -hmm. something as simple as being able to uh, prescribe diabetic shoes as a nurse practitioner, you know, yes. and your average legislator is not going to think about that issue unless you bring it to their attention. So it sounds like GAPNA is very politically involved. You also support your members and students in terms of networking, going to conferences, getting educated. You know, Absolutely. it's a real specialty organization. But I, I want to say we're not politically involved as mm-hmm. far as, you know, um, uh, national po- politics, but yeah. we're, we're, yeah, I just want to make that clear. Yeah, we the state do try to, yeah, we try to stay out of politics, but as far as advocating for our patients, yes, we're very mm-hmm. active and we have to be careful. And you did mention full practice authority. So we need to go there. Yes. You and I were talking the other day and there's somewhere in the vicinity of 30 states that now have full practice authority. And then there's also the the um, territories of the U.S., Guam and U.S. Virgin Islands, et cetera. What is happening in certain states like Pennsylvania 
where you said that Pennsylvania is surrounded by states that are actually full practice authority states, but Pennsylvania is sort of this little island of limited practice. What's going on there right now? Oh, boy. It, um, yeah. So as long as I've been a nurse practitioner, which is, well, I don't want to say uh, since 1997 when okay. I graduated, but yeah, that was always my hope and dream to have full practice and have a clinic, but it, it never actually happened. And um, so Pennsylvania has had a lot of resistance uh, from uh, the American Medical Association and actually physicians in our state. And excuse me, a lot of it is, is um, pr- 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 yeah, proprietorship, um, um, territorial. Um, yeah, so there's been a lot of resistance and we've been, I've been a member of our state organization for many years, and we keep trying. We've gone through several presidents of our uh, state organization. And, um, you know, I think that this year is the closest I think we've ever come to seeing maybe a light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. We always seem to have the, um, so Pennsylvania is bicameral, meaning we have a Senate and a House just like the national politics. And uh, we always, our bills always get passed in the Senate, but we get resistance in the House. And then we had a um, chair of the, so long story short, what happens, and this is why as nurse, as healthcare providers, advocacy is so important. What happens is that there are groups that will go and see our legislators and tell their story as to why they don't think nurse practitioners should have full practice authority. But on the other hand, as nurse practitioners, we need to go in and see them and tell them our side of the story. And that's where advocacy comes in. And I think sometimes um, we're not all on we're not doing as much as we should, I should say. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's why it's so important. And that's such a struggle. You know, on the RN side, we've been dealing with the um, nurse licensure compact and now the enhanced yeah. nurse licensure compact, which is, you know, a preponderance of states are now part of the compact, but there are some holdouts. And that's kind of a difficult thing for nurses as well who want to go over straight state lines. We want to make it easier yes. for for yeah. staff to move around the country as needed. So nurse practitioners have their battle, which is around full practice authority. Yeah. RNs have theirs around the compact. And we don't even have time to talk about a licensure compact for nurse practitioners, which would also be incredibly helpful. That's a whole and other show. <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. No. <laughs> so there's, there's so there's quite a bit to to unpack around nurse practitioners and what's happening out in the world. Mm-hmm. And before we go, there's one particular issue I would like to clear up because this comes up in conversation periodically and I want to address it that sure. once upon a time we had adult nurse practitioners, ANPs, and we had GNPs, gerontological yes, nurse yes. practitioners. And what happened there? <laughs> at a certain point in their infinite wisdom, the ANCC decided something needed to change, right? So talk to us about this ANP, GNP if you want to call it a debacle, whatever it is, how did this all come out? Yes. Well, what happened is they, I believe, you know, I believe they thought that since the population is aging and that geriatrics is a specialty and that everyone needs to have more training on geriatrics, which is absolutely true. So, they basically did away with an I'm I'm an FMP and a GMP. So because I love the uh, care of the older adults so much, but they took away 
the GMP, the Gerontological Nurse Practitioner Certification. And what they did is they included geriatrics or gerontological nursing into the FMP, um, I believe the Psychiatric Mental Health MP, and the adult MP. So, So now... And what happens when you do that without adding any more course time is that it really got watered down. Just going to say dilution probably happened pretty naturally, didn't it? Yes, it did. And, Mm. you know, if you talk to a lot of nurse practitioners who are FMPs or so really there's adult gero primary care, adult gero acute care, and they... They will often say that they they feel like they don't have enough of that specialty education, and that's where Gatna comes in, because we have the special specialty education. I see. You know what? What really strikes me as we talk about this is like when you say adult nurse practitioner, which obviously you can't become an ANP anymore, but there are grandfathered adult Uh, nurse practitioners out there, right? But you say adult nurse practitioner, that means 18 years old and up, right? Yes, So it only goes to figure that the education will only touch on the older adult just so much if during the course of a nurse practitioner program for adult Gero, they have to cover from 18 to um, you know it's 100. a lot it's a lot of information yes it's a lot and of information it's not just men it's men and women so mm-hmm. you have all think about all the uh, you know education that deal with um well 18 year olds so you have the adolescence the young adult the pregnancy that it's it's mm-hmm. a ton ton of it is it is really a lot lot. and so that must have been disappointing for a lot of people when the ANCC decided to do that it was yes Mm -hmm. and um, I think uh, we somehow we missed the boat on um, getting the GMP but I will say there's a light at the end of the tunnel because what GAPNA has done uh, has GAPNA has gone through all the hoops to create a specialty designation. And I'm sorry, we didn't talk about this, but um, there is a uh, gerontological specialist certification Mm -hmm. and there's an exam for that. And it is a certification. And if you pass the exam, you get to have the initials GS-C at the end of your name, meaning you are a specialist in gerontological care. Oh, that's excellent. Is that brand new in 2023? That is brand new, I believe, as of last year or two years ago. Yes. Excellent. Okay. Yes. So it's going to be it's going to be G S dash C certified. That's Gerontal, really uh, yeah, geriatric to hear. specialist certified. Yes, yeah. and it is an exam. It is uh, a credential. And you get those initials once you pass the exam. And I will uh, admit that I am a GMP, but I will be taking it um, oh next month. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Awesome. Okay. So it's exciting to have those specialty designations after yeah. your name. So you're you're a family nurse practitioner. You're yes. a adult gerontological nurse practitioner. No. 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 Sorry, I took the exam to be, and it's actually gone now. It's GMP, the gerontological nurse practitioner. Oh, I see. Okay. That's what they took away. That's why this is all so confusing. Yes. You also have your doctor of nursing practice from Drexel University. Yes, I do. And like I said, at the top of the show, you're the president-elect of GAPNA. And yes. you've received all sorts of awards. You got this Pennsylvania State Award for Excellence from the AANP in 2019. You've gotten the Distinguished Nursing Educator Award from the National Hartford Center of Gerontological Nursing Excellence. You got the GAPNA Excellence in Education Award in 2020. And you were inducted in 2022 as a fellow of the FAA 
NP. So you've been around and you're you're published, oh, you're you're yeah. a professor, you okay, have, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> oh, but you're you're really a voice for this particular specialty and you know you're you're out there doing really great work to support nurse practitioners. Thank and you. you know, I really want to thank you for that. And for someone who is thinking about going to NP school, to me, lately, it just seems like everyone and their mother wants to be an FNP, right? And when I talk to yeah. people about why they want to go into family nurse practitioner school, I hear all sorts of different answers. Why do you think people don't think about the adult gerontological? Why are they not thinking in that realm? I I think the the conversation for many years has been that if you become an FMP, mm-hmm. you will be more marketable. And I I wouldn't call it a rumor, but it's been the conversation that if you know um if you become an FMP, you'll be more marketable. You'll be will be able to get a job. That may or may not be true, but having been the director of a uh, an NP to uh, BSN to NP to DMP program, I used to interview all of the folks coming in who wanted to go from having their BSN to their MP to their DMP. And I found that many of them wanted to go into the FMP track. And I would always say, why? And that mm-hmm. predominantly was the answer because I want to, you know, have more chance of getting a job. I'll be more marketable. And then I learned to ask the question, well, have you ever been a pediatric nurse? Well, no, I don't really like that. And I'm like, don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> No, this may not be for you. Think mm-hmm. about, you know, adult gero, primary care or acute care, but there's just this kind of misinformation, I guess you would call it. And you know what? As more and more and more and more people become FNPs, guess what? There's more competition for the jobs yes. that are out there. And with our aging society, right, which is not going away anytime soon, no. I think having an adult Gero specialization isn't necessarily a dumb thing to do right now at this particular point in history. And I used to have that conversation and Mm -hmm. um, some, some would see the light, some, Hmm. but so much of, so much of the education of the FMP is going to be on pediatrics. So, you know, the young adult, really it's lifespan. If you don't, want to take care of infants and children and pediatrics, then, you know, there's very, you're not going to do, do well uh, if mm-hmm. you're in a gerontological setting. So, you know, that, um, yeah, I wish more nurse practitioners would choose adult gero. Well, maybe somebody hearing this episode will think, huh, <laughs> maybe I need to think twice about that. Okay. And so, At the end of each episode, I ask all of my guests four quick lightning round questions that have nothing to do with anything we've been talking about. So are you game for that? (laughs) Sure. All right. So this is our little change of gears. So this is sort of a lightning round. So they're quick answers. But the first question is, how do you define success, either personally or professionally? Oh, well, you know, it's taken me a long time to think about this. I think in my younger days, it may have had to do with income. Success has nothing to do with income, although, you know, earning enough money to live is very important. Sure. Uh, there was a time in my life, and I'm, I'm try- I hope I don't go too long, but there was a time in my life, I, when I knew I wanted to go back to school, I wanted, I thought, I want to be a a nurse anesthetist. And I spent some time and and I love nurse anesthetists. They are wonderful. They are smart. And I spent some time in the OR and I thought to myself, 
oh my gosh, if this is my work day, this is not for me. Mm-hmm. What I loved was seeing the patient. And I also spent time in uh, ICUs. That was not for me. I really mm-hmm. wanted to see the patients on a daily basis and be able to talk to them. So it was after that, it was primary care made me happy mm-hmm. and yeah. older adults. And it wasn't about the money. It was really about no, the care you were not. giving. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, thanks second, for Yeah. Second question. Could you name or just describe a person who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous or someone none of us would ever, ever have heard of. Oh my goodness. Wow. I have had instructors, teachers who have made such an impact on me. Um, I don't know. And many are still alive. I don't know that I want to make. You have made an impact on me. (laughs) Oh, you're so sweet. So your gentle like, manner, your questions. Um, so I, was there just one person? Um, I have to say my third grade teacher had the biggest influence on my wow, life. Oh, do tell. Oh, she was, it was a very, it was a hard, I grew up in a family, the oldest of six children and um, times were hard. And, um, you know, as, one of six children, you don't get a lot of attention, mm-hmm. really. There's not that much to go around. But the, my third grade teacher, she saw that and she would actually stay after school and spend time with me and encourage me to, to draw and paint. And then she actually gave me a kitten. I mean, who does that? Oh, what was her name? Honestly, don't remember. I just remember her and I remember her personality and she had dark hair and she was tall and she was the sweetest thing. And I, you know, there have been teachers that I've had that had such kindness mm-hmm. that really changed your life. And I thought that's, that's the kind of teacher I want to be. Mm-hmm. See I, the impact somebody can have. You know, I remember my third grade teacher and, you know, Mrs. Pollock. And, you know, you never know the impact you can have on someone. Even the smallest little comment can have such a positive or negative impact on someone's life. So it's lovely that you have that in your consciousness. Uh, You know, I I don't think about it all the time, but you you brought that right to the surface. I thought, oh my gosh. That's good. I like that. She was wonderful. All right. So third question, the penultimate okay. question. Oh dear. Is there, is there a book or a movie? It doesn't have to be an absolute favorite because that's so hard for many of us, but just a book or movie that you would say has impacted the way you think, the way you live, the way you work, anything like that at all? Uh, yes. Um, it was a gift to me. It's not, it's not a huge book. It's mm-hmm. uh but it's uh, written by Herman Hess. It's called Siddhartha. Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 How can wow. you not read that and be changed? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. Just, uh, Herman Hesse, is a, he was an important author in many ways. And um, I discovered him in high school. It was very important, very formative in those years for yeah, me. That yeah. I appreciate that. Just, um, yeah. It, it has a lot of meaning in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in a good okay. way. Okay, so well, last question. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there's more. <laughs> last question. Okay. If you were named queen of the world tomorrow, <laughs> what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your, of your subjects? Oh my goodness. What would your first act as queen of the world? Be? <laughs> oh boy. Well, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble, but I um, I do watch a lot of documentaries mm-hmm. and um so I I did watch the Panama Papers again, and um, I love the way uh, the person who gave up for people who don't have never seen it. I really uh, recommend it. But um, it starts off with uh, I guess a, a whistleblower, but he he remained anonymous. But um, he talked a lot about income inequality. Hmm. And how if a lot of 
billionaires. We we know a lot of billionaires control most of the wealth where the the other 90, 95%, a lot of people mm-hmm. live in poverty. And um, so, I mean, if I was queen of the world, maybe I could fix that. I, I certainly don't feel that I could, but- um, Well, as queen of the world, you could. I, so, I could, I so would do that. Income and, equality would be something you'd want to go for. Income equality, I think, would really help everyone in healthcare for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellent. Well, I think those are good places to start. <laughs> well, Anne, thank you so much. This has really been wonderful. It's been very enlightening around GAPNA, around adult gerontological nursing, and all the issues that we brought up. So thank you for taking the time, and thanks for being with us here, and good luck as president-elect of GAPNA. Thank you so much. I appreciate your questions and your your time. It's been a joy. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Nurse Keith Show. The show notes will be at nursekeith.com or on any app where you happen to be listening. Consider becoming a patron of the podcast at patreon.com forward slash nursekeith. And remember, you can get a 10% discount on your first coaching package, as I mentioned on each episode, if you mention the show in your initial email. We're proud members of the Health Podcast Network at healthpodcastnetwork.com, and we are adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. Before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by the musician Robert Fripp. May my living honor my parents. May my living repay the debt of my existence. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico. And Anne Creeble Gasparo bidding you adieu from? Beautiful. Actually, today is a beautiful day in Pennsylvania. All right. Thank you, Anne. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we will catch you on the proverbial flip side.